This is KJZZ News, your listener-supported public radio station. I'm Tiara Vian, and here are this week's stories you don't want to miss. Thanks so much for listening. For the week of August 15th, 2022, here are some top stories. Northern Arizona has been besieged with almost daily flooding after a pair of devastating wildfires near Flagstaff this year. Officials say the price tag to prevent further damage from flooding will be steep, between $125 and $145 million that will need to come from the federal government. From our Fronteras desk in Flagstaff, Michel Marisco reports. Chris Repka stood in what used to be his driveway and is now a running channel of eroding soil that grows deeper with every storm. Just as I pulled up, the water began to rush again. So uh, immediately as you pulled up, we have uh, yet another flow right into our driveway. Um, Impeccable timing. This is from a rain that fell up on the high peaks about two hours ago. He and his wife live on a road just northeast of Flagstaff that threatens to wash out every time it rains. Their neat country home sits on lush green fields. The cool wood air is crisp with pine. It is idyllic and peaceful until you look across the road at the mud field, the sandbags, and the concrete barricades keeping our home dry. It's been pretty stressful not knowing if we can get back to our house and uh, all of our animals. We've been you know, feeding our horses early anytime we leave the house, um, just not knowing if we can get back in. Communities surrounding Flagstaff face fast-moving floods every day now. Basically, the closer you are to where the water pours off the mountain, the faster the torrents. New channels like the one that used to be their driveway are devolving into widening chasms. His neighbor, Edgar Warner, stood at the edge of a new ravine where the road ends in a new cliff. What we recognize and, and what we experience as a community is this road washes out. Uh, we do our best to keep it as maintained as we can, but you know it continues to erode backwards from this, this waterfall, if you will. Hang in there with us. There is the, the short-term mitigation measures are really the only thing we can do right now. Lucinda Andriani is a county's flood control administrator. For now, the county is moving sediment out of the way as new floods hit every day, trying to keep the water from surging inside people's homes. Andriani said the county will need between $125 and $145 million in federal funds. The breakdown is this, about $40 million to restore watersheds in the Coconino National Forest, another $50 million to control flooding in neighborhoods, and upwards of $45 million to improve drainage on area highways. We're working diligently with our congressional delegation to bring in the funding, to get the long-term mitigation in place, but it's going to take time and it's going to take a level of resources, not only through the federal government, but also the flood control district. And there's gonna be some very difficult decisions that have to be made. Democratic House member Tom O'Halloran said the request will reach Congress before the end of its session in November. He said given the explosive nature of modern wildfires and burn scar flooding, Congress will need to act quickly. And that, that's going to mean that we have to move things faster, both from the planning stage, like the thinning of the force, which we've already started to accomplish, uh, to the after effects and protect our homeowners and our children and our families. Yeah, 
By late Wednesday, the waters had started surging around Repka's home once again. A flood watch is in effect until the weekend. Michel Marisco, KJZZ News, Flagstaff. In education news, earlier this summer, the Arizona legislature passed a universal school voucher expansion bill. Now members of Save Our Schools Arizona are trying to refer the measure to the ballot to give voters the last word. From our education desk, Bridget Dowd reports. When House Bill 2853 passed in June, some public school advocates were outraged. We were aghast and shocked. We didn't think that lawmakers would actually go through with this. That's Beth Lewis, the executive director of Save Our Schools Arizona. The group formed in 2017 specifically to refer another voucher expansion bill to the ballot. The last referendum was a success. Voters rejected voucher expansion two to one. That bill would have made up to 30,000 Arizona students eligible to get state funds to attend a private or parochial school. With this latest bill, all 1.1 million students would have access to vouchers. Lewis says that means a program that already diverts about $250 million from public schools could drain more than $1 billion. That's about a 20% cut across the board. And I've worked in Arizona schools for 12 years. I can tell you that not one school in the state can withstand a 20% cut. Save Our Schools volunteers need to gather nearly 119,000 signatures from Arizona voters by September 24th. If they're successful, that will put the latest voucher expansion plan on hold so Arizonans can vote on it in 2024. We have people coming out of the woodwork to sign, so we're, we're feeling pretty good about it. Sharon Kirsch has been spending her weekends at a table outside changing hands in Phoenix, waving down customers and asking them to sign. A lot of people know about it, are angry that we have to do this again. But proponents of the bill say there's nothing to be angry about as long as the money follows the student. They will lose not one dime unless a parent chooses to remove their child from a public school and place them in a private or homeschool, pod school, hybrid school, micro school situation. Christina Curso started getting vouchers for her son's education nine years ago. She's also part of a group of parents protesting the efforts by Save Our Schools, asking voters to decline to sign. This gives us $7,000 to be able to navigate this with our child and put them in the setting that fits them, rather than the $14,300 that a public school student would be getting. So it's really a win-win. Save Our Schools advocates have argued that there isn't enough oversight to ensure that money from the vouchers is used properly. Accurso disputes that. You submit your receipts through a system called Class Wallet. You can use vendors that have already been pre-approved from them. So you're not going to get your next quarter funding till it's been approved and they've looked through all of your receipts to make sure you didn't spend it on random personal items. What there is plenty of scrutiny over is the signature gathering process. Dawn Penich Thacker worked on the 2017 referendum. She says laws passed by the Republican-controlled legislature allow the smallest errors to disqualify signatures. When I was collecting signatures in 2017, someone had agreed to sign my petition sheet and they turned the page, the signature page over to look at the language of the bill and it ripped off, which invalidated the entire page. And I am not kidding you, I cried. She says the good news is they're a well-oiled machine now. They understand the process and have plenty of passionate volunteers to get it done. After the validation process, they could still face legal challenges. That could mean tens of thousands of dollars in legal fees. The price tag alone is also a legal strategy to see if perhaps the folks running the petition 
movement maybe can't afford to even defend themselves. Back at the table in Phoenix, Linda Bunting-Blake and her husband are signing the petition. We think we've got the issue settled. And then uh, it seems like uh, the, there are some legislators that uh, feel like uh, they'd like to tweak it, twitch it a little bit. And um, so it seems like we're always trying to catch up here. She has 12 grandchildren, some in private school and some in public school. One of the things that pains me the most is that my children that go to Brophy are getting a stellar education. It is absolutely a stellar education. But that's the kind of education that every child in, in Arizona should get. And, uh, and we're, we're not doing that right now. She says even with the help of school vouchers, not all families can afford a private school education. And access to high-quality learning shouldn't depend on your socioeconomic status. Bridget Dowd, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. In science news, here's Nicholas Gerbis. Experts have credited Omicron's swift spread to both biological and social factors, from its greater transmissibility to a relaxation of social precautions. But new research shows another insidious factor at work. Most infected people don't even know they have it. A new study in JAMA Network Open finds more than half of people infected with the Omicron coronavirus variant may not know they have it. The findings are based on two years of blood samples taken from employees of Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Southern California as part of a longitudinal study of COVID-19. Only 44% of those with coronavirus antibodies knew they were infected. Of the rest, only 10% reported symptoms, which they wrote off as colds or similar illnesses. Lack of awareness and a resulting absence of precautions can substantially bolster community transmission. Nicholas Gerbis, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And now for another part of the series called Exit Interview from our original production, The Show. Here's Lauren Gilger. We're trying to find out why so many people who have made their mark here leave. In Phoenix, it's not cool to say you're from Phoenix. Like, I'm guilty of that too. Anybody that told me that they were born and raised in Phoenix and then they're in their 30s, I'm like, what are you doing here? You should leave. <laughs> I don't trust you at all. You are and have been for your entire life so entrenched in this place. Um, you know, what did it take to, to get you to move? What's that been like? Well, what it really took is a pandemic. Huh? My body sort of had like this fight or flight response. And I was like, man, I got to get out of this country. Like this country is not built for us. I wanted a challenge. I wanted to grow. And people say in New York, that's if you can survive there, <laughs> you can live anywhere. You think you'll ever come back? I will never say never. I really can't say what's going to happen in the future, but I, I'm not letting go of Phoenix. What kept me here was the people. I was fortunate enough to meet some wonderful individuals, genuine, really good people. Today, we head south of the border to meet Yvonne Watterson in a tiny Mexican town outside of Guadalajara called Ajijic. It's a slow place. Every day, I mean, strangers smile. They say, buenos dias. The church bells ring. There's roosters crowing every morning. <laughs> uh, it is a picturesque place full of expats from around the world, just like her. It's noisy. <laughs> Family's important. It feels very safe to me. I, you know, I love it. 
As you might guess from her accent, Watterson didn't grow up in Ahihik or in Phoenix. In fact, she's from a very different part of the world, Northern Ireland. I was born in 1963, so essentially I'm a child of the Troubles. And so the Northern Ireland of my childhood was really um, a very grey, rainy, undivided place. You know, our schools were segregated. You know, people would see it in the news in the United States, I'm sure, you know, bombings and, I mean, terrorism. Growing up surrounded by violence and conflict, she knew she would leave from a young age. And in college, she finally got her chance. I got a job upstate New York one summer, and it was fantastic, and I just loved it. And as it turned out, I had relatives there who invited me back and took me on a road trip to Phoenix. And it was in the early spring, so I thought, oh my God, this weather's amazing. (laughs) I have to come back. (laughs) She did come back, even if her ideas of what living in Phoenix would be like didn't quite live up to reality. For me, it just presented this, this opportunity that I could escape kind of the rain and the troubles and the unemployment and all of that. And, you know, and I thought that I'd come back and get a convertible and (laughs) ride in a freeway listening to Tom Petty or something, you know. She had a long career here in public education, teaching in several districts before becoming a high school principal and turnaround specialist. She married here and raised a daughter in a home they bought in central Phoenix. She had a good life in Phoenix, but everything changed for her on September 11th, 2001. When I turned on the news that morning, it was just that, that sickening feeling, a feeling of fear and revulsion. I thought, oh God, no, how could this possibly happen in the place where it's not supposed to happen? Mm-hmm. And I think if you ask anybody from Northern Ireland at that time, they'll tell you the same thing. You know, if you hear a car backfiring, you know, you'll think, is that a bomb? Even though you went about your daily life because as strange as it sounds, I mean, there was a level of of normalcy about that. You know, you grew accustomed to it. But I never expected that to happen in the United States. And it was kind of like that fear came back again. Then in 2006, she was principal at Gateway Early College High School in Phoenix. And Arizona voters overwhelmingly voted for Prop 300, taking away in-state tuition from undocumented students in the state. It directly impacted her students, 38 of them to be exact, some of whom didn't know they were undocumented. She had to tell them. I thought, well, obviously people don't know what they voted for. I mean, this is how naive I was. And I thought people really don't realize that by voting for Prop 300, they're denying these kids, these minors of their education. I mean, I thought Ed McMahon was going to show up with one of those great big checks so that I could pay for the tuition for the kids. I really did. Turns out people did know what they voted for. And when she spoke out about the plight of her students in the Arizona Republic and worked to raise money to help pay for their tuition, she faced immediate backlash. The emails I received were just, it was, it was stunning to me. Hmm. Um, everything from, you know, you should go back to where you came from, um, you know, we wish you were dead. <laughs> you know, wow. things like, it was just terrible. It was absolutely terrible. She did raise the money, but the experience left her with a bad taste in her mouth and a diminished view of Phoenix and America. You know, I still remember the image of you know, the empty seats at graduation of the kids who had been deported. Yeah. And it was just, I, I remember thinking, what was it about me that made me more acceptable as an immigrant 
than these kids. Hmm. Because the truth is that when I came to the United States, I didn't have, I overstayed my visa. Hmm. And I married an American. And, you know, the laws were, were different then. But, you, you know, I, I don't think anyone was going to pull me over when I, you know, if I was speeding. I used to say to the kids, you're not leaving campus at lunchtime. Because I, I was afraid that they would be, you know, profiled and, and deported because yeah. they didn't have um, documentation that somehow legitimized them. What did that make you, that experience, make you think about America, about Arizona and Phoenix in particular? How did it make you feel? Well, it made me feel that, and, and, and I don't know if, if this makes sense. I remember thinking, well, I'm still looking for America. I remember thinking that. Mm-hmm. I, I remember thinking you know, just the idea of America, you know, the notion of America, because it's a fantastic notion. And I thought it belonged to everyone. Yeah. I thought it was within everyone's grasp. And, and I remember this sickening realization that actually, no, it doesn't belong to everyone. And people would say things like these kids need to go back to where they came from and they need to go back to the back of the line. But there was no line, you know, they had no They just had no options. And it was very difficult to explain that to people um, Mm -hmm. who, who essentially dehumanized them. You know, it was, it was very disheartening. And I just felt, you know, I don't know if guilt, it was almost like a weird guilt. You know, why am I, why am I acceptable as an immigrant who actually did not follow the steps? Mm -hmm. I didn't, but I was able to stay. So so you left. You went through some personal struggles, it sounds like, a breast cancer diagnosis. I know your husband passed away. Uh-huh. Yeah. And you said you were thinking about going home to Ireland, but you ended up in a small town in Mexico instead. How did this happen? Oh, my gosh. Well, <laughs> I did. I thought about going back home. And, you know, my grandmother used to say to us when, when we were little, follow the sun and I have to tell you, there's something about waking up every day to sunshine, which I did enjoy in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. And I really didn't want to go back home to the rain. I mean, I truly didn't. And then one night, my my boyfriend and I were out in Phoenix at um, Me Patio, a place that we frequented. And uh, we were sitting at the bar and uh, there there was a guy sitting there and, and he, uh, he overheard us talking. And uh, I think I must have been talking about back home or... Van Morrison or something, and he joined in the conversation. And then he said to me, well, you know, there's this place that you should visit, this magical place. And I said, (laughs) really? And he spelled it. He spelled A-J-I-J-I-C. And, you know, there was just something about the way he said it. And I thought, well, tell me more about this place. And so, you know, as if I have a sense of direction, he started to explain to me where it was in relation to Guadalajara. And I had no idea I'm one of the few people in Arizona who had never been to Rocky Point. I mean, I'd never been to Mexico ever. You know, so it was fascinating. And he said, you know, it's got the perfect climate and it's a very welcoming place and you'll love it. And he said, and you know what? I own a hotel there and you guys can come (laughs) and be my guest. And I'm thinking, this is crazy. But uh, sure enough, we went home and we found the hotel online and we... (laughs) <laughs> we made a reservation <laughs> and came down here for my 55th birthday. And it was, oh my gosh, it was just fantastic. And I, and it was really, it was so interesting because, you know, I'm walking these, these cobblestone streets and I just felt like my feet 
were on familiar territory. Yeah. And I felt hopeful, bizarrely, in the, in the way that I had when I'd come to the United States for the first time in the summer of 1984 with my backpack and my Sony Walkman, you know? <laughs> and uh, it, it just, you know, it was, it was really lovely. And we came back for, I think, around the 4th of July. And then we came back on day of the, for Day of the Dead. Mm. And I thought, oh, this is it. I mean, this is where I want to be, you know, and I mean, maybe that idea that I was talking about that, that dream of America, you know, maybe it it isn't necessarily a place on a map. Hmm. So final question for you, then, Yvonne, I mean, looking back on on Phoenix in particular, and America in general, now that you've left, and you're in this place that you love, what are your thoughts? What are what are the things that stick out in your mind? Truly, incredible sadness about the loss, the loss of innocence over and over again, particularly with mass shootings. It's just, uh, you know, watching it here on the news from afar Mm -hmm. feels very like the way it used to feel when I first came to the United States and I would watch the scenes from Northern Ireland play out on the news before the Good Friday Agreement. It's the same feeling. It makes me feel very uncertain about the future. You know, I have a daughter who lives there and I worry about her. I remember when I had her in 1997, I thought that she would be safe in the United States. And I fear that that she's not Hmm. and that many people are not. So that's, you know, how I feel. And having said that, when I go back to Phoenix and drive up to Sedona, I mean, the, the beauty of the place, it's breathtaking. And, you know, just to know that you have that incredible beauty and all the opportunity and all the potential. But at the same time, I think there's a feeling of just waiting for the other shoe to drop. Hmm. And just how bad is it going to get before there are serious changes made? Yvonne Watterson, thank you so much for telling us your story. Oh, well, thanks very much for having me. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. In business news, most homeowners would like to think that if their home was destroyed suddenly in a natural disaster, insurance would step in to cover the cost of rebuilding. But two-thirds of homeowners who lose their home in a wildfire do not get enough money from their insurance to rebuild or replace their homes. Residents of Flagstaff who lost homes in the tunnel fire earlier this year are contending with this reality. From our podcast series, Here, Arizona, Anthony Wallace reports. The Leisure family has lived at the same Flagstaff property for more than three decades. This past April, theirs was one of 30 homes that burned down in the tunnel fire. The fire took nearly everything they had. Yeah, all the home videos, everything. Including sentimental items that reminded them of the family's mother, Monica, who died just months before the fire. It's like losing her all over again almost with how much stuff and love and everything she put into that house. This is Trisha Peralta, Monica's daughter. She said that in the weeks after the fire, they dug through the wreckage for anything that reminded them of her. A lot of it was like going in there to fish for pieces of my mom. We had a day that was really hard because we were in the area where we knew my mom's ashes had been because we were planning to spread them and hadn't gotten around to it quite yet. So when you're digging and you start seeing lighter ash and you know, you know, it's like, okay, this, I'm not just digging through the ash of the house right now. This is the ash from mom's little spreading urn. I found the leisures through a GoFundMe page Trisha set up just after the fire. 
And though she's long since moved out of the house and has a family of her own, Trisha has made helping her family recover from the fire like another part-time job. She even got a new job that would allow her to take more time off to help. I drove up to Flagstaff to meet them. Hey. Today, there is hardly any sign there had been a home there at all. And the porch would have been about here, so the front door would have been about here. Today, four people live on the property. Trisha's father, Eddie, his sister-in-law, his other daughter, Jess, and Jess's 10-year-old son, Zen. And rebuilding is a huge financial struggle for them. Eddie is retired now. Jess is a caregiver for her aunt, and they have to replace literally everything. It actually hits you more down the road whenever you say, well, I got that, and you think, I don't have it no more. It burned down, you know? That, uh, that was kind of the worst part of it for me, you know? Yeah, I all, we basically made it out with the shirts on our backs. When I visited them, they had already cleaned up the whole site with the help of volunteers, and they had purchased an old RV to live in on the property with the help of their GoFundMe. The leisures do have homeowner's insurance, but like most people who lose their homes in a wildfire, it will not cover the full cost of rebuilding. We do surveys after disasters in the areas where we're working, and it's been pretty astonishing how consistent the number is of people who self-report, I do not have enough insurance to cover the cost of replacing the home that I had. And it's almost always two-thirds. Amy Bach is the executive director of United Policyholders, an insurance consumer advocacy organization. And one reason underinsurance is such a big problem now is that building costs are rising quickly. But Bach said another is that insurance companies aren't always upfront about whether a plan will cover the cost of rebuilding. So United Policyholders advocates for legislation that requires insurers to clearly communicate people's coverage to them. Disclosure that you are underinsured, that would be effective. Warning, you know, just like you have warnings on these pill bottles. Bach said she typically sees homeowners insurance payouts come up short by between $200,000 and $300,000. So people have to get creative when it comes time to rebuild. They just cobble it together and do what they need to do. You build a tiny house or smaller house, you cut corners, or you take out a loan. Or people start GoFundMes, like the Leisures. Trisha told me they got $136,000 for the house. The new one they want to replace it with costs $220,000. On top of that, she said they only expect to get about half the value of all their other stuff that burned, including some of Eddie's valuable tools. So in total, they're going to be short by about $150,000. We're not going to have enough, and yeah. which is why I still have the GoFundMe going, because yeah. yeah. nothing's cheap. But even with all the work and stress of building back, they never seriously considered moving away, where the wildfire risk is lower. This is, you know, this is my spot, and after I'm gone, it's going to be passed down to him or one of the grandkids, you know? Yeah. But it's, this is basically home. It's always been home, and I'm, I'm not giving it up that easily. <laughs> Anthony Wallace, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And finally, in Fronteras News. Tucson Water Authorities briefed community members Tuesday about the city's drinking water sources and plans for the future. From our Fronteras desk, Elisa Resnick reports the meeting came hours after the Bureau of Reclamation announced new cutbacks in Colorado River supplies. 
The town hall discussed Water One, a strategic plan laid out in 2019 to address future water challenges in Tucson. John Kameek with Tucson Water said in addition to Colorado River water, the city shores up needs with groundwater, storm water, and recycled water. Uh, so from the Tucson perspective, we are supporting our agencies that are in those negotiations, whether it's the Department of Water Resources or Central Arizona Project, to make sure that there's an equitable disbursement of those water supplies from Colorado moving forward. Tucson receives almost 145,000 acre feet of river water each year. Kamik said the city uses about two-thirds of that and stores the rest underground. He said the city expects to see a four to 6,000 acre foot reduction in water because of the cuts. But more cuts could be on the horizon as negotiations with states continue. Alisa Resnick, KJZZ News, Tucson. And this has been the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast, made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation and Alliance Bank, the Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation and Beach Fleshman, the Arizona Community Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. I'm Tiara Vian, and this is KJZZ, your news and information station.